Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yes, the show was 100% bonkers, but I think it was always <laughs> entertaining. Yes. Oh, there's and, no doubt about that. Oh, my God. Which is one of the reasons why I think that it lived in infamy, right? Is yeah. Nobody could deny the fact that it was high energy, mm-hmm. that there was this gorgeous music coming mm-hmm. out of these amazing performers' mouths, and that the stakes were really, really high. We're talking life and death here in terms of storytelling. So the audience was not bored. They were maybe perplexed and couldn't believe what was happening in front of them, but they were never bored. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are covering the musical Carrie. The last show we covered was Mamma Mia, and I thought, you know, why not cover another heartwarming mother and daughter story? (laughs) Here to discuss it with me is someone who is no stranger to high school musicals. Everyone, please welcome Julia Lester! Hi! Oh my god, thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored to be here. Julia, you're the perfect guest for this. I can't wait to chat with you about this show. You can currently be seen as Ashlyn in High School Musical, The Musical, The Series, as Jacob Heron would say, which is streaming... Oh my god, on- <laughs> you know Jacob Heron? I love Jacob yes. Heron. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, I- some some fan like made a video of him just saying the title of the show, and oh, it's yeah, my yeah. favorite thing in the world. Oh my god, um, the show is streaming on Disney Plus. What has the whole experience been like for you? Do you mind? Oh my gosh. Uh the best thing ever. Um just how I hope everybody would imagine it is. It's so wonderful and I grew up as obviously a theater kid and so to be able to do a TV show like what I grew up with and like the best thing in the world uh is really cool and I um we just got confirmed for season 3. So I'm really excited Come about on, that. Come on, season 3. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> That's wonderful. Thank you. Congratulations. You are a smarty pants actor, and I really appreciate your talent. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Now, speaking of high school musicals, I mean, we're, we are talking about Carrie, which takes place in high school. Mm-hmm. And when you look back at musical theater history, essentially the 20th century of musical theater had Greece. That was pretty much the only <laughs> musical that had to, anything to do with high school. Oh, my God. I didn't even think about that. And then in the past 25 years, there was this boom. And now you have Heathers 
and Mean Girls and Dear Evan Hansen and High School Musical and Carrie, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Which was a bomb when it, you know, first opened in the, <laughs> in the late 80s. And I actually think that that might have something to do with it. The fact that we were not looking at properties surrounding the stories of high school students as anything to do with legit art or theater. So what changed? What do you think? We talked about this a little bit on our Heathers episode, but I can't remember what we said. (laughs) Yeah, that is like so interesting. I really actually never put that into thought that like most of the big musicals that are out there right now are have to do with high school and were written within the last like 10 years. That's really crazy. Um, I don't know what changed. I guess maybe, I don't know. I think Gen Z culture is like really a big pull in media and like and trend I don't know, I think people in are general. really yeah also i have like really come to understand that like people really love that sense of nostalgia and nostalgia mm-hmm. is something that's really healing and comforting and so i don't know i guess to to be able to travel back to that like fun naive high school time is really exciting because you already are escaping with theater but to then have a genre that's relatable to everybody everybody went through their teenage years yeah, maybe maybe that's why. But that's really interesting. I really never thought about it like that. <laughs> well, I also, you know, baby boomers grew up in the time when, like, you were not listened to as a young person. Yeah. Right? You didn't yeah. have a brain <laughs> until yeah. you got married and moved out of the house. And I think that that has definitely changed now, especially as we have learned that so many of these formative experiences in our youth continue on as we graduate and as we get older. I... <laughs> Tangent, side tangent. My mom has this really sweet friend who's like in her 70s and she's a widow. And this man like started taking her out on dates and talking about marriage. And then he like dumped her and then like showed up with like a picture of the new woman that he's met. And I'm like, whoa, wait, wait, wait a second. Like, this is high school drama playing out in our 70s. Yeah. You know what what I mean? Yeah. So wow. there that are is certain drama. that is drama. <laughs> serious <Jesus>. drama. But <laughs> I think we're able to admit that now. That like we graduate high school, but also maybe we never graduate high school. Yeah, for sure. But absolutely. Yes. Now, when did you first come in contact with Carrie, the musical? Um I guess it was when I found out that uh one of the teen musical theater programs around where I grew up was doing it for their summer musical. And I, yeah, I I guess it was really when I found out that they were doing the show and I got really interested in it. I mean, I had always known the concept of Carrie. Like, I feel like the prom queen doused in pig's blood is like a very famous, yeah, just like an iconic image and just Mm -hmm. a famous concept. And maybe I had seen the original film, Maybe in my youth, um, I definitely watched a lot of scary movies growing up. So they could have, I could have totally seen it, but I, I definitely didn't really get into it when I found out that um, one of the programs around me was doing it because then I wanted to be involved. So then and, I, uh, and you yeah. booked it, right? <laughs> I did, I did. <laughs> I, I went in very determined, and yes. um, I did, I did end up getting to play Carrie, which was like the coolest thing ever. Um, I met a oh. whole bunch of new friends that year. It was a lot of fun. Wow. Was there anything therapeutic <laughs> for you in playing the character? Or, I mean, were you even <laughs> aware enough at that point to to realize it was? I mean, that's a funny word to use, like therapeutic, when you're doing such a, like, 
awful, like horrible show as Carrie. Yeah. Um, but yes, it was because <laughs> but yes, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, being a theater kid, that's like what you crave is like the really intense, emotional, gritty disgusting parts of theater and that was like the entire show i got to be doused in blood every single night and be messy and scream and do all the crazy things that an actor always wants to do so i yeah it was therapeutic to do all those things i guess but it's a horrible show so (laughs) look we have we have all the feelings and, (laughs) and all we want to do is release them all at the same time yeah yeah really and that was well, also, like, my first, like, real part in a show. Like, that was, oh, like, the cool. first time I had played Eponine in Les Mis, and that was, like, my first, first, like, role that wasn't, like, a, a kid or just, like, a whatever. And then Carrie was, like, a really big moment for me as, like, a performer. So, yeah, in that way, too. That's incredible. As, like, you know, pretentious as that is. <laughs> no. No, those experiences are so important. I mean, yeah. to back that up, I have a statement from your mother, Kelly Lester, who's a wonderful actor and friend. Oh, my goodness. And this is what she had to say about seeing you in Carrie. (laughs) When I saw her in Carrie, my heart stood still. She was a star. It gave me chills, all caps. Um... Oh wait, that's all she said. But like, that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, the the dramatic reading was very like the tone was perfect. Like thank that's you. yeah, no, that was great. Um, thank you, thank you, Kelly, if you're listening to this. <laughs> yes, she rocks. She rocks. That's and really I can nice. just imagine. Look, there. I'm sure. Speaking of like cathartic, there is something about seeing your children go through stuff on stage that is not always cathartic. In fact, it's actually very confronting. When my mom saw me do Seymour Krellborn, she almost like <laughs> got out of her seat and beat up the plant when I got eaten. And she was and like she had like near panic attack. Yeah. So uh, I can imagine watching you get doused in blood was quite the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, mom. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> okay. So for me, I first found out about Carrie because of this dude named Ken Mandelbaum. Now, he is a a well-respected writer and critic of theater, and I always really liked his writing growing up because as analytical as he could be with his own opinions, you never once doubted the fact that he loved musical theater and wanted the art form to thrive, right? And you don't always get that from critics. So I immediately started looking for all of the stuff that he had written, and he had written a book called and i'll show it to you now because here's my copy not since carrie oh my god i have that book it's the bible oh my god i love that yeah (laughs) 40 years of broadway musical flop so it in this book he goes through every musical flop basically from the beginning of the art form to or i I guess the golden age up until carrie and and in it i mean i just loved this book i read it all the time i still do and In it, he is both like, what were they thinking? And also, what an exhilarating evening of theater to have been one of the few people who saw the Broadway incarnation of Carrie. Mm -hmm. Because when it ran, it ran for like four or five performances. That was it. In addition to a couple of previews, the reviews were so scathing that they, you know, announced they were closing almost immediately. And yet every show was sold out because nobody wanted to miss this thing. Because mm-hmm. once it was gone, it was gone. Yeah. And 
I've always loved that aspect of flop musicals, which on this show, the F word is not a bad word. And by F word, I mean flop. (laughs) Since reading this book in my teenage years, I've always been obsessed with flops because it's like, take it while you can, you know, as much as a legendary hit only comes around once in a while. Sometimes a legendary flop only comes around once in a while. Yeah. And Carrie was one of the most infamous. So in the 70s, Stephen King writes a book called Carrie, which is about this girl who is essentially forgettable but has telekinetic powers. And I would say it's like a supernatural horror story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Brilliant book. It gets made into a brilliant movie by Brian De Palma, who his stuff usually is too much for me, like Scarface. I'm not I'm mm-hmm. not the audience for Scarface, but he did carry and it's incredible. It's one of the very few horror movies that was nominated for Academy Awards. Both Sissy Spacek and Piper Lowry in the cast were nominated. And so it was really well respected. 80s comes around. The 80s comes around. The writer of the movie, Lawrence D. Cohen, goes to see this opera called Lulu um, with his friend Michael Gore, who is a musician. He had written the music for Fame and for Footloose. And they go to this opera that's not very well known, written by a man who's not very well known because he died pretty early. His name was Alban Berg. And they came away from that opera and said, you know, if this guy was still alive, the next opera that he would create would probably be Carrie. And so they decide to write it themselves. Now, like based off of the book or the movie that had just come out? Or the, just both? Well, just the, the property phenomenon. itself. Yeah, the okay, movie is okay. actually wow. pretty, it's pretty close to the source material, okay, uh, yeah. which is impressive because a lot of Stephen King films aren't. And uh, they just figured this story with this like operatic high, like you said, all of the feelings, right? Yeah. <laughs> Constantly pouring out of these characters mm-hmm. is worthy of being musicalized. So Michael Gore brings on his lyricist for, you know, uh, Footloose as well as some of those other songs, Dean Pitchford, and they start working on creating the show. They do a workshop in like 1984. And then that's when some of the craziness starts happening. <laughs> Hey, podcast friends and family, I'm taking just a mo to send another podcast your way. It's from this guy. His name is Eric Vitro, and he's been the vocal coach of pretty much every singer you've ever listened to. In terms of musical theater, he's worked with Chenoweth. He's worked with Jackman, Matthew Morrison, Casey Levy. That doesn't even include other up-and-coming artists like uh, Ariana Grande and John Legend. Anyway, on his new podcast, Backstage Pass... Eric's celebrity students retrace their vocal journeys from the very first song they ever sang through the challenges they faced building careers. I'm really looking forward to it because if you have ever studied voice, you know that voice lessons also inevitably become therapy sessions. And I have a feeling Eric will show us a side of these singers we've never heard before. And who knows, maybe we'll pick up some pointers along the way. Be sure to listen to Backstage Pass wherever you get your podcasts. Now, sometimes when these legendary shows happen, we think it's just because somebody had a crazy idea. They met somebody with a lot of money who thought it was the crazy idea was a good idea. And boom, theater happens. That is not the case with Carrie. Yes, they had this kind of crazy idea because who turns a horror film into a into a musical? But they got the Royal Shakespearean Company in London to create the show. Now, 
At this point, Royal Shakespeare and Company was very famous for this little musical called Les Mis. <laughs> very small, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not like they don't know yeah. their way around musicals. Sure, and wow. when, I didn't even know about this. It, it's crazy. And the at the time, the artistic director, I think his name is Terry Hands, he decides he's going to direct it. Now, when we were talking about how high school stories weren't really considered legit, I think that this is where things get a little cuckoo crazy because Terry Hands is doing a story about, you know, a telekinetic teenager in high school, maybe doesn't feel like the regular theater going audience at RSC would be down for that. So he chooses to tell the story as a Greek tragedy. And that includes the set. The set has all of these like soup. It's all white, you know, with these pillars. People are wearing yeah. basically forms of toga, all to present Carrie as a Greek tragedy. Oh my God. Which you can see how he got there, but like totally unnecessary. Right. Wait, but this is like this is just like in the development of the idea of a no, musical that's this surrounding is when, Carrie. This is like they did the workshop, then they go to London to mount it before going to Broadway, oh, and in wow. and in that mounting is when he brings this whole concept and puts it on the story. Oh my god! Because I've only ever seen the opening number from on Broadway, like that, like really grainy video that's on YouTube of like yes. the. That's like the only the thing that I've ever seen. Yes, exactly. That's the mm-hmm. only thing that I've ever seen from the original, original musical of Carrie. So that whole concept is like, I did not pick up any of that from that performance if it carried over to there, if you're getting yeah. there or not. Well, so then, <laughs> so then that's the interesting part is that you have high energy Debbie Allen choreography that feels a little like Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah. Pushed up right next to this like super serious Greek tragedy and the tone is completely all over the place. Mm-hmm. Wow, right? that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't go well in London. The original leads, Lindsay Haley and Barbara Cook. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> Barbara Cook was the original Mrs. White. In London. In London. In and London. Barbara Cook, of course, being the original Marion Librarian, also, mm-hmm. she loves me. She almost gets decapitated by the set on opening night and immediately puts in her notice but agrees to stay with oh, the show. That was her that it happened to. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. My god. That story, I mean, that's how that was how Betty Buckley got involved in the pr- production. Okay. Exactly. I didn't know that it happened all the way back in London. Right. It sucks. <laughs> okay, so this is what legendary Broadway diva Barbara Cook had to say about that experience. I'm not sorry at all that I did it, but I did absolutely the right thing in leaving it. I thought there isn't a chance in hell they're going to be able to pull this off. They really didn't have any ideas about how to fix it. Things were really set in concrete, and they did nothing but polish the same killing dance numbers. Going in, I thought... This man is the head of the Royal Shakespeare Company. If a scene isn't working, he's going to see it's not working. Well, he didn't. Oh my God. That is iconic and so awful for that. (laughs) Yikes. So now the show goes to New York because they were like full, full speed ahead. I know. Now they have a new leading lady in Mrs. White, the mother. Uh, played by Betty Buckley, who also just so happened to also be in the original film as the gym teacher, 
Like, go figure. Yeah. This role is meant for Betty Buckley. I mean, can you imagine? She is a terrifying stage presence. And... (laughs) Like incredibly intimidating, yeah. And uh, and I think she probably just chewed the crap out of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the show opens, and you read all of these accounts of there being booze, but then also standing ovations for Betty Buckley and Lindsay Haley. Like it's this crazy circus of an experience that happens as the first show in the new Broadway season that year in 1988, 89. And then it disappears quickly and only through storytelling and myth, (laughs) funny enough, lives in the canon of, wow, don't you wish you would have been there to see that? Yeah. So now skip to the 2000s. They decide to, I mean, like I said, we've all been talking about this famous flop for decades at this point, and they decide to revive it into an off-Broadway production, redo the script, redo some of the songs. It has a limited run off-Broadway. There's a cast album. And, I mean, now enter your summer theater program. Who's doing Carrie? Yeah, like, and doing that specific off-Broadway production. Yeah. Um, which I think is pro- the only property of the musical that's available. Like, yes. I, you're yes, probably definitely. not... Yeah, no. I guess that was a given to do that version of the show, but... Yeah, I don't think the Royal Shakespeare Company is, you know, licensing the original <laughs> Carrie. <laughs> Definitely not. Definitely not. And if they and if they were, I feel like there would have been at least some sort of attempt to retry. I guess there was. I guess this is the attempt, the 2012, mm-hmm. 9, 12, oh God. I think it's 11. What is it? 11? Mm-hmm. Okay, somewhere in the middle. I was like yeah. close. <laughs> yeah, 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 totally. The 2011, um, yeah, that's that's the version that we did. That's that's the version that I know best. And that's the version that we'll be talking about today. Now, if Sick. anybody is interested in going even in an even deeper dive about the creation of this musical, there's a great podcast by some folks in the UK called Out for Blood, which is essentially an entire podcast season about Carrie. And I know a lot of people who really, really love it. So I wanted to give them a shout out. Uh, if you want to listen to multiple episodes about Carrie the Musical, go check out our friends at Out for Blood. Now, did you see the L.A. Carrie? I did not. That was before I kind of knew about the show. That was okay. like bef- before I, yeah, that was a couple years before I did it at that program. After the Broadway revival, they, they've continued to revive it a little bit, but one of the Big Mountings was actually in L.A. and it was an immersive theatrical experience where you were sitting on these bleachers and they got moved. You essentially made the stage in different ways and were really up close in the action. Lots of special effects. It was a bloody good time. Uh, I've I've seen the video of of the Chris getting like... flung across the the theater <laughs> on on wires that was crazy i've definitely seen seen videos of that production but to to have experienced that in real life uh would have been so no, cool i hope they do it again at some point it was an experience and i really really enjoyed myself but they've also followed this the same script uh the first act begins with sue snell which is just one of the worst names ever sue snell <laughs> <laughs> Um, Sue is a converted bad girl, I would say. Uh, She has a heart of gold, but has always kind of been in the spoiled crowd at high school. And when we first meet her, she is 
a shell of a human being. She's been through something incredibly traumatic, and she it looks like she's at a police station. She's just sitting there recounting the events of, of this trauma. And as she's questioned about it, all of these figures from her past and in her life in high school start appearing. Her boyfriend was this, uh, like, super varsity-type guy named Tommy. And, uh, and then her best friend was... Chris Harginson. Chris is absolutely spoiled. I, I would like to think that Sue could have become like Chris, but because she mm. has a conscience, she decided not to be the total spoiled brat that Chris is. Mm-hmm. Uh, her boyfriend is named Billy. And then there's this cipher at the school named Carrie White. And Carrie, how would you describe her? Ooh. My goodness. <laughs> uh, quiet, but complex. Um, very naive. Very mm. innocent. A little bit scary. The scary Carrie. <laughs> she's a little, she's creepy. She's known for being creepy. Her entire life, all the kids that she's grown up going to school with have thought that she's scary. You know, there's a whole part in the show where they talk about how she she got on her knees in fourth grade and and screamed at God or something ridiculous like that. So she's a little bit of a of of a freak out there. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. I I had never thought that maybe they were scared of her. Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I'm. I think that now they resort. I mean, I think that she's always been bullied, but I think that. That growing up, they didn't really know what to do with her in class. Like when she would do creepy things like that, I think everybody mm-hmm. would maybe run and hide. But now that they're all teenagers, they can resort to bullying, yelling, yeah, bullying and yelling horrible things at her and telling it to her face instead of talking about it behind her back. So um, I think that that's like the mechanism that they've used because they are truly terrified of her. I think <laughs> that's so interesting. I love that. I love that POV. All of these relationships in high school are are explored in this really kind of dark but exciting opening number called In, which is, you know, about wanting to belong in high school. I didn't, this was not my high school experience at all. I'm just going to be honest. Born and raised in Utah, I was Mm -hmm. constantly surrounded by nice people. I feel very grateful. Uh, What was your high school experience like? Um, well, I did, I did not grow up in Utah, but I did grow <laughs> up, <laughs> but I, I could definitely did not grow up with people as, as nice as the people in Utah, but I actually grew up in a pretty good high school environment where, uh, I had a lot of people that were into the same things as me. And, uh, I mean, I could have been my specific experience, but I, I do feel like that kind of behavior bullying in that sort of way was definitely looked down upon rather than the cool people were doing all that stuff. So I think I grew up in a pretty safe high school environment too. It's very, very different than the, than the one in the show. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you did, by the way. That's one. Yeah. Oh, me too. Me too. I had had a great experience. It is interesting though, that this type of view where all of the kids are really rough around the edges and they're mean to each other is kind of the stereotypical way we view high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, I hope maybe that'll, we'll reach a point where, that feels as foreign to everyone else as it does to us. Yeah. This is also an interesting, when you listen to this song, you see how they were working to make the entire score sound like one score instead of Bye Bye Birdie versus Opera, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so this song definitely has like a, a deep, dark undercurrent to it. Mm-hmm. Now, all of the girls at school are going to gym class. Miss Gardner, who's the gym teacher, tells them all to hit the showers. 
which I've always thought was just torture in and of itself. And the perfect way to begin a horror film is <laughs> making a bunch of teenagers shower together. <laughs> uh, Carrie goes into the shower and has her first period, her first menstruation. She's never been told about it. So when she sees this blood coming out of her, she thinks she's dying and freaks out. <laughs> All of the girls tease her for her reaction because she's ignorant to, uh, you know, to these changes in life. And probably another iconic scene from this story, they throw pads at her and yell, plug it up. Yeah. Oof. It's awful. Well, I think it's really interesting how Carrie kind of cuts off that opening number Mm. Um, it like in like ends and you get like a very brief applause before you hear like a blood curdling scream, um, which is like the perfect way, like you said, to start like a horror musical (laughs) is like someone screaming and bleeding, um, like within the first two minutes of the show. Yeah. That scene is, is awful, but I, I think it's really interesting how that sets up what happens throughout the rest of the show. That one moment. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. Talk (laughs) about an inciting incident, right? Yes. Yeah, literally. Now, Miss Gardner sits her down and teaches her about what has happened. Um, You know, she's not broken. She's not going to die. This is just what happens. That doesn't stop all of the bullying from the girls who have just witnessed this really embarrassing and horrific scene. And that hurls her into her title song, which is called Carrie. She's giving full, like, John Proctor in the Crucible <laughs> in this song. <laughs> oh but God. it's my name! Yes. Uh, it's, it's an epic song. I can't believe that your first big role was singing this song at the top of your lungs. That just goes to show, like, what kind of what kind of tone I love. I was, like, really into <laughs> it. I was like, oh, yeah. Living, living. <laughs> That's another like example of Carrie inserting herself into a moment that was originally about students. Like there's that like whole hubbub in the beginning and then she cuts through with her voice. Mm. It's like you don't expect things coming out of her and she cuts through all those like moments. That's so true. She is a driving force. As much as she could come off as a wet blanket or a victim, <laughs> she's actually kind of hurling everything forward in this in the narrative, which is yeah. really cool. And makes her a much more complex character. Yeah. Uh, Once she gets home, we meet her mother, Margaret, Mrs. White. How would you describe her? (laughs) Psycho. Scary, crazy, (laughs) psycho. Um, But maybe that's just me going off of Piper Lowry's original uh, interpretation of the role on screen. She is absolutely terrifying. And I'm sure that when you look at it, you know, when you read the book, you're, you find out that she is was abused and, you know, is clearly has a lot of issues that she doesn't have the right support or the right people to help her through. Mm-hmm. Uh, she projects, projects all of her issues onto her child. Obviously, like, there's a lot. She's a way more complex character than what I just said, than just saying scary and psycho. But you don't get to see that in the hour 45 minutes of the show. You don't get to see what was written in the book so from the show's perspective she's terrifying and horrible and the worst mother ever <laughs> there you go no sympathy for that <laughs> well she can be all of those things and still be a psychopath you know yes. what i you know yes yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I do kind of feel, and I think that this is the actor's job, is that they can bring a, a certain degree of humanity to Margaret White because she Definitely. loves her child. She mm-hmm. wants to save her from pain, especially all the pain that she's encountered in her life. Mm-hmm. But in the process, she's teaching self-loathing to an insane degree. And the amount of yeah. control that she's seeking in their home is like at psychopath levels. Yes, definitely. She's using fear. She's using all of the worst parts of religion to control Mm -hmm. her daughter Mm -hmm. um, with the intent of just making her happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. Which I I think is a, you know, is a not never to that extreme, hopefully, but it is a common theme, like mothers trying to make their children happy and not doing it in the right form or the right way. Mm Well, in t- I think in terms of parenting, it's this strange contradiction where in order to be a good parent, you have to go against every instinct you have to protect your child from pain, because if they don't experience it themselves, they're not going to grow up to be an adjusted human being, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They're going yeah. to grow up to be Carrie White yeah. with <laughs> all of these feelings, all of these essentially powers laying dormant within her, just waiting for the right moment to for them all to probably come spilling out in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that if it's not telekinesis, <laughs> mm-hmm. then, then it can be something else for a child. You know, mm-hmm. it can yeah. be acting out. It can be experimenting with drugs. It can present itself. It can manifest itself in a variety of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when... Carrie comes home, she tells her mom that, you know, about what happened in the showers. And she's really hurt. She's like, why didn't you tell me? Why why didn't you prepare me for this? And uh, Margaret is, I mean, she's beside herself. Because I think on some level, she was just hoping that it would never happen, that yeah. Um. That Carrie would never get her period and become a woman. But now that she is, now that she's, you know, essentially fertile and able to have a child, she has opened herself up to what she believes is sin. And so she starts forcing her to kind of repeat this phrase, which was, and Eve was weak, right? In terms of Adam and Eve, that Eve is the person who almost destroyed God's plan, which I definitely don't believe that. Uh, yeah. And I always think it's interesting when Christians take that uh, that point of view. But um, in her desire to make this lesson known, she shoves her into a closet with all of this religious iconography and essentially tells her, repent. It's damaging. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Um, I think that's also probably the first time that Margaret is coming to terms with the fact that she's not always going to have control over Carrie. Obviously, that erupts within the show and she really doesn't have control over her towards the end, but... You know, that, like you said, it's the first time she views her as a woman and not just a child that she can mold and yell at and just still do whatever she says. Mm. Um, I think it's also the first, yeah, the first time that she's like, oh, she might become her own person one day. So let me like nip that in the bud. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's so much here. And we're talking about this with pop music writers who wrote yeah. fame i'm gonna live forever, <laughs> forever and, yeah <laughs> and yet like they're writing this really complex psychologically complex material for these two mm-hmm. women and mm-hmm. uh and it's really wonderful 
Yeah, I mean, the music and the story, every like the book and the music and everything from that version of the show, all of it excels within the relationship between Carrie and Margaret. Like, mm-hmm. I really feel like that's where the best songs happen. It's where the best lines happen. It's where the best performances can be made. Yep. It's like within those scenes, like those two characters in that relationship, I feel like has been so laid out like since Stephen King wrote wrote the book like it's very obvious like who they are to each other Mm -hmm. and so um yeah I just think that like that relationship is is so developed when you say that the word that pops out to me is relationship this relationship is so expertly explored and 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 written down and all you have to really do is tap into it yeah and it will Mm -hmm. work Yeah. Mm -hmm. So much, I think, of whether the show has worked is whether you can, once again, mesh these two different worlds, the high school world with the incredibly complex world of the mother and daughter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of high school, now we go back (laughs) to the (laughs) we go back to the kids where Sue is feeling really bad about the whole shower sequence. Yeah. About making Carrie feel the way that she did. She's having uh, big time doubts. Her best friend, Chris, is like, I don't understand what you're talking about. We live in a kill or be killed type world. And she sings the world according to Chris. Now, I am obsessed with this song. Not necessarily. (laughs) (laughs) I love this song. I love it. This is like one of the only songs that I will just play like for funsies. Like I love the score and I'll like listen to the show like when I want to. But that's like a song that I'll put onto like any of my playlists. Like, yeah, I'll just I'll just throw it in anywhere. I love that song. (laughs) I love it. One of the reasons I am obsessed with the song is because in the rest of the show, when you're talking to Chris, you say her name with one syllable. But in this song, it's almost impossible to sing it without breaking the name into Chris. two syllables. Chris. That's really funny. The world according to Chris. <laughs> to Chris. <laughs> That's hilarious. I love that. I listen for it every time and it makes me it makes me really happy. <laughs> After we learn about Chris and her messed up view <laughs> on the world, her toxic view on the world, mm-hmm. um, Sue basically breaks up with her best friend. She's like, peace out. I don't want any of this. And uh, takes her boyfriend, Tommy, with her. Yes. Now we're back at the White Household and the mother and daughter do their evening prayers. Carrie is in like the closet, right? Uh, Looking at these scary figures of Christ on the cross and with nails, you know, nails and thorns and bleeding. Uh, Lots of blood in this in this show. (laughs) And meanwhile, Margaret is doing her prayers as well. It actually brings them together because Margaret brings her out of the closet and in a very abusive relationship way is like, I'm so sorry, but I'm just doing this because I love you sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Another beautiful song, though, called Evening Prayers. Yeah, that's also the first time I'm pretty sure that Carrie discovers her powers. Oh, Am you're I right. Jumping? Oh, I totally forgot to to talk about when her powers show up. Because, <laughs> like, in the shower, right, one of the, uh, uh, like, a light blows up above yes, her head. That hap- mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a couple things that happen in the beginning of the show that are, like, uh, clearly in her control, but she's, like, not aware of it. And mm-hmm. then during evening prayers when she's in the closet is, I don't know how it's, it could, I think it might be done differently in other shows, but sure. that was the first time she, like, telekinetically raised a, a, a Jesus statue and then she gets out of there and says I'm sorry to her mom and then they sing together and it's like you said very 
uh, now she's showering her in love and affection and there she, you know, Carrie is singing on her lap and she's stroking her hair after just burning her arm over a candle. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm horrified. Yeah, it's awful. This is something else that they changed from the original. In the original, she didn't have any telekinetic powers until the end of the first act. And then all oh, of a sudden wow. her hands became like fire. Oh my God. <laughs> and the, and like, wow. if you didn't know the story, you'd be like, what the crap what the is hell? happening? Why are her hands fire? <laughs> That's great. So as <laughs> Carrie is getting to know these different things about herself and growing up, we see the telekinetic powers being one of those things mm-hmm. that she's getting to know and play with. Back at school, Tommy, Varsity Tommy, turns out he's actually quite a sensitive young man. (laughs) He has written this poem, and the teacher asked him to read it in front of everyone, and it became a song called Dreamer in Disguise. And when Carrie hears that poem, she's really moved by him sharing kind of his inner, inner world with everybody. But of course, when she speaks up to, you know, applaud his sensitivity, everybody once again harps on her and bullies her back into submission. Uh, Sue sees the connection that she has with her boyfriend, Tommy, and it encourages her to go up to to Carrie and apologize for the whole thing in the shower. Uh, Carrie doesn't believe her. She doesn't believe that someone would actually be nice to her. And so uh, she explodes and storms off. And then once they are all back in gym class, Miss Gardner, the gym teacher, you know, chastises and punishes all of the girls for their for the way that they treated Carrie in the shower and that they have to apologize or else they're going to be sent to detention. They all apologize except for Chris, (laughs) of course, Mm -hmm. who uh, says something even worse. What does she say to her? I'm trying to remember. Um, she says Carrie White eats shit. That's when that famous oh my line gosh. comes out. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. That's so right. She, so Miss Gardner threatens them and says, if you don't apologize, then you can't go to prom. And so then all the girls reluctantly apologize. And then it's Chris's turn and she steps forward and Carrie goes, no, it's okay. You don't have to say anything. And then Chris slowly walks forward to Carrie and you think she's going to apologize to her. And then she says, Carrie White eats shit. And then Miss Gardner says, okay, Chris, you're out of the prom. (laughs) And that's when that's when Chris's revenge story starts being plotted. (laughs) Yeah, because now it's not only ego, it's like also ruining her, her prom. Yes. What was your prom like? growing up like did you go to did you go to junior prom do you remember um i didn't we didn't have a junior prom but we did have the senior prom at my high school and uh i remember honestly having like a really great prom like i know yeah i know some people go and they're like no the dance was a little overrated but i really remember them playing really good music and i was with all my friends and i remember having a really great time so so i know it's like and it's like very opposite to what we're talking about and probably not like you know helpful in the conversation but i had a great prom so (laughs) no I look, I prom was not a huge deal to me. Um, So like when when these, you know, kind of like in the opening number, when these are the stakes of high school, I'm like, yeah, I don't really. I'm sorry, you guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, but also I was really antisocial in in high school. However, I did ask a girl to prom. I convinced our prom party to go see a production of Into the Woods for a date. (laughs) 
oh my god work that is so good that is so good because we couldn't do anything the day of because essentially oh. everybody in our group were were like student government and stuff so they were in charge of yeah. setting up everything so that yes. day was completely spoken for sure. so we went into the woods like the night before two nights before and then everyone was so exhausted by the time prom actually actually happened because they had worked so hard on it that we like all went home at 1030 and called it. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a great prom night to me. Um, that's so funny. That That is really interesting, though, because I was also on like the student government, but there's like a really like like set in stone rule that the seniors don't work on their own prom. Like they oh, make the juniors and the sophomores and the freshmen all go and work on the prom so that the seniors can arrive and experience it. And enjoy it. it. That's um, a great yeah, rule. but also also our prom like did not happen in the school gym. Like we had like, you know, a fancy venue. Like oh, the ticket cool. was like stupid expensive. Like oh, not gosh. your not your typical high school prom. So I That's why you had the great DJ. I know. That's why I had a good time because the ticket was like a hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so not not a classic prom, but uh, still, but it, still but a good, a good one. Yeah, it was a good one. It was I'm a glad. good one. Yeah. I mean, spoiler alert: this is not a great prom. So uh, no. <laughs> so I'm <laughs> glad that we like, got that out of the way. I know, like my my high school experience was not helpful in this situation at all because I actually had like kind of a good time in high school. <laughs> 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 That's so awesome. So Chris is pissed because she can't go to prom. And Miss Gardner, the teacher, approaches Carrie and is like, are you going to prom? And she's like, absolutely not. And she takes the moment to talk about how that doesn't absolutely have to be true by singing this duet with her called Unsuspecting Hearts. And this is the first song from the score that I actually heard because Alice Ripley and Emily Skinner from Sideshow fame mm-hmm. came out with a couple of duets albums. And this song was on their second one that was called Unsuspecting Hearts. Oh and it was like the biggest thing for us theater nerds because like it was a fully produced song from the musical Carrie. And, uh, and it's also a beautiful song. It gives me chills all the time. Yeah, it's gorgeous. It's one of the best songs in the show for sure. And also something just kind of silly for like the PE teacher to have like the best ballad in the whole show. Fair enough. <laughs> um, That's so true. Yeah. Something that also makes me laugh is the character choice for the thick accent for Miss Gardner in the musical. I think it's so silly. And I wanted to like bring it up because I was like rewatching the movie and I was like, she does not, she never really had an accent before, so if it was just like a character choice for like one of the Miss Gardeners, and then it just like followed as a pattern after that, um, just makes me laugh. She's always got this like really silly, thick. Is it Southern? I don't want to get no, that it's, wrong. It's, it's a super Southern accent, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's Carmen. Uh, and in the Off Broadway recording, it's Carmen Cusack from like Bright Star fame, right? Incredible yes, voice, is. and obviously is well known for playing Southern characters. Yeah, I. I'd, I'm not entirely sure why either, especially since Betty Buckley is Texas, right? She is so proud of being a Texas woman. And she doesn't have any sort of Texas accent or anything in the movie. Because they live in Maine. Yeah. Like, that's why it's so funny. It's like, you've got this, like, PE teacher with this, like, really thick Southern accent, and they, like, live on the Upper East Coast. Like, (laughs) it's so silly to me. Um... Yeah, I don't know. It's just a funny trait that I That's think is funny. just, yeah. That was going to be my question. Is the musical set in Maine? Because I know that the, the movie yes, is. Yes, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Sue has a line 
I might be making this up, but I feel like she has a line when she's like with the detectives where she says where she's from. Um, but if not, our wonderful, whoever did costumes for our show, we had um, like PE shirts for oh, the cute. like gym scenes. And it said like Maine, it said like the high school and like where it was from. So oh, I think cute. that like we based it in Maine, but I don't know if like it's actually usually I mean, like it would that. make sense. M- yeah. Basically, like Stephen King has a little bit of a universe in mm-hmm. a Marvel sort of way and it all takes place in Maine. Yes. Oh, I didn't actually know that all of them do. I mean, that's uh, interesting. Like with the exception of maybe The Shining, but I okay. think even wow. they started like that family started in Maine before moving to Colorado. Wow, that's anyway, cool. Yeah, I love Stephen King. I'm not going. Yeah. Do do do. After unsuspecting hearts, there's this great song called "Do Me a Favor." Um, I love a musical theater moment where two characters are saying the same thing, but actually communicating different things so in the yeah. it, in this song uh sue is asking tommy to do her a favor which is to take carrie to prom instead of mm-hmm. sue and chris caris is asking <laughs> is asking her boyfriend billy to help her ruin prom for carrie mm-hmm. the end mm-hmm. and both of the boys agree mm-hmm Tommy shows up to Carrie's house and asks her to prom. She says no, uh, you know, several times. And then she hears her mom asking her to come back in. And so just to get him to shut up, she's like, fine, I'll go to prom with you. Now leave, now leave. Yeah. And when Carrie tells her mom about that, because she's actually kind of excited about it, go Mm -hmm. figure, Margaret has another complete mental breakdown. And reveals in the song, I remember how those boys could dance, how, I mean, we think, Margaret White's pretty horny, right? (laughs) Yes. Oh, my God. 100%. Because, like, you hear the song and she feels completely out of control in terms of her, like, sexual desires and passions. And I mean, she fully, like, disassociates from what's going on. I mean, Carrie's trying to interrupt her the whole time and be like, hello, hello, and she's just in this trance of like, uh, it's, yeah, it's... Remembering all of the the horrible feelings that she had with boys when she was younger that she's trying Mm -hmm. to protect her daughter from. It's, Mm -hmm. once again, creepy AF and also, (laughs) like, fascinating. Yes. I mean, Um, but this is like strike two for her. First she came home and got her period, and now she's talking about boys. This is like so many things happening. She's like going through all of the things that Margaret never, ever wanted her daughter to go through. And here it's happening. So, of course, she's going to lose her mind. But, uh, yeah, it's still awful. <laughs> it, it it really makes Carrie angry enough that now she reveals her powers to her mom. I think, like, all the windows are open, right? And mm-hmm. it's raining outside and, and Margaret's like, I'm going to close the windows. And Carrie's like, I'll get them. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. <laughs> and then Margaret's like, she's a witch, you know? Mm-hmm. You're right. Talk about just a snowball of events that make you realize that your daughter is <laughs> not yeah. who you wanted her to be. She has feelings. She likes boys. She had her period. And now she can move things with her marine. Mm-hmm. It's also a much better idea than her hands becoming fire. Yeah, I really want to now see how they did that. Was it like f- full flames? Was it like projected? <laughs> There's no way they had projection. No, it was like Lumiere. Oh my God, great. That's, I mean, yeah, cool. That's so funny. 
Um, just like little tiny. <laughs> just, just like little flame, like a little pillar of flame. Yeah. Oh my God. That's so funny. And that's the end of act one. Yes. I don't know if this is like normal in the show or if this is just the way that our director had it. But at the end, along with the music, I was directed to do like this like stare at Margaret and then this stare at the audience. And then I like looked up and like on the last chord, they had all like the lights shatter. Like, yeah. So it was like she controlled it with her mind. And then I always just remember like before the audience would like applaud, everybody would just go, whoa, like that. It's like (laughs) one of those moments that you just like will never forget because like, yeah, it was just the light cue was really good. And it was it was just exciting. (laughs) That's so fun. I love I love the horror genre for this reason, because Mm -hmm. you can every audience is going to react differently. Are they going to be impressed? Are they going to laugh because they're uncomfortable? Are they yes. going to actually be scared? Like you never yeah. know. And I, I love that, uh, that danger. Yeah. Do you think any other Stephen King stories could be musicals? Oh, geez. Um, I know that they made an opera of The Shining, like a modern opera oh, of The Shining. That's um, cool. Yeah. You know, I can't really picture anything in musical format. I can picture some things in like a really cool dramatic play. Oh, but interesting, yeah. thinking yeah, thinking of any of these stories with some sort of soundtrack is kind of like very foreign to me. Like I would be really surprised to see how how that could be translated. I mean, this show is is an example of that. I think yeah. it's I don't I would have never been able to imagine a, a show like this with pop music and this story. So Totally. It, it clearly can be done. It can be done, though. <laughs> I was thinking. Do you have, yeah. Do you have? I don't any? know. I think of Misery, which is another great I don't movie think I'm version. With that it's one. a it's a great movie. I highly recommend. Okay. Uh, but it's this uh, in the movie. It's Kathy Bates as like a really psycho fan of a writer of oh. a Western kind of trash literature, and she's obsessed with his lead character and so he she kidnaps him and keeps him hostage so that he'll keep writing about this character that's cool and i can't help but feel like as you see what he's writing those could definitely be be musical sequences you know that's really genius i love that yeah i gotta watch that that's That's a great one i love kathy bates i love kathy bates that's what she won her oscar for (laughs) highly recommend for this halloween great i will do that Okay, so act two um, <laughs> is a night we'll never forget. That mm. that little musical phrase is sung way too many times in this act for my taste. <laughs> yeah. It just becomes an earworm that like mm-hmm. burrows into my brain. Suffice it to say, all of the teenagers are really excited for prom, except for Caris, who uh, <laughs> doesn't get to go. The favor that she got her boyfriend to do, though, is that they go to a pig farm, kill a pig, drain its blood, and they're going to basically douse Carrie White with blood at the prom. Mm -hmm. Obviously a callback to the whole shower thing. Yeah. Now, in the original Broadway production, this was a song called Out for Blood, and which is probably why the podcast is called that that I mentioned earlier. I do want to read about what this original musical number was like so that you can appreciate that it's not in here anymore. <laughs> okay, great. Perfect. Okay. In the number called Out for Blood, boys in leather perform dangerous choreography around and over a fire strip, which doubles as a pig trough. 
Chanting the refrain, kill the pig, pig, pig. It's a simple little gig, you help me kill the pig. And Billy, topless and with his hair in braids, smears his chest repeatedly with the blood of the squealing pigs. When the number ends, a few people applauded dutifully, but most of them looked at the stage or at each other with mouths open, just like the audience at Springtime for Hitler. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. I mean, there's a little bit of that in that moment where, like, Billy and... Or, yeah, Billy and Chris have a moment where they have the bucket of blood mm-hmm. and they like take, they each put a little bit on each other's face. Yeah. So, like, a tiny bit of that lived on in this version, but like, that's literally all it's 0.2 seconds. Exactly. That's it. It's already gross enough. That's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> we don't need the whole like Lord of the Flies moment. No, no, we get it. The pig is dead. Like, everybody knows. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sue and Tommy are, of course, sad that they can't go to prom together. And so he sings the song to her called You Shine, which I don't really care about. <laughs> and then it's finally prom night. Well, it's, it's like with everything that's so interesting in this show, every time that we go back to like something kind of traditional, it's just like it sticks out like a sore thumb. You know what yes. I mean? Yes. And the, 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 uh, Tommy and Sue have their own. I feel like each character has a very specific like theme song or mute mm, like musical music theme, theme yeah, yeah, that yeah. goes along with them. And uh, Tommy and Sue's is kind of is get, gets repetitive in that second act. They have the a lot of their songs are very much the same theme and chords. Oh, chords. Feeling, (laughs) everything the same. I'm pretty sure that that version that he sings to her is already a reprise at that point. I might be wrong. Or they do another reprise at some point. But I, yeah, I totally agree on that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So now let's go to the prom. Everybody's at prom. Carrie White looks stunning. She -hmm. looks gorgeous in this dress that she made herself because, you know, at least her mom taught her how to sew. Mm -hmm. And... Everybody's super impressed by the fact that she made her own dress, that she looks great. Uh, Miss Gardner couldn't be happy, happier for her. And this whole sequence has a lot of these little reprises of songs from the first act, mm-hmm. all kind of leading up to the big prom climax, which is the reveal of who is going to be prom king and queen. Uh, Chris has rigged the system to make sure that Tommy and Carrie win. And so... When they do win, they go up to receive their their prize while everybody sings the alma mater, which, by the way, is something else I love in musical theater, that there's always an alma mater. Wicked has one. Merrily We Roll Along has one. Carrie has one. I could not sing you an alma mater from or a song from no. from my Our high show- school. Our show had an alma mater this season. I never really? had one growing up. Yeah, yeah. I think it's literally. something that only happens in musicals. <laughs> yeah, I I totally agree. And it's always some like like you know rounded vowel Latin sort of like old school. I'm like, where did this never like? I learned how to like say the Pledge of Allegiance. Like that's like the most like alma mater. You know, like that's <laughs> that's so true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but they have one as well. So they yeah. sing the alma mater while they go up to to get their prize. They're standing there. Chris has situated the bucket of blood above her. She pulls the cord and boom, blood all over Carrie White. Mm-hmm. I mean, that piece <laughs> of iconography and the storytelling, like you said, it's just everybody knows that image. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't know anything about Carrie or even the name, I feel like that image of a prom queen doused in blood is just some sort of universal, well-known thing that everybody knows. And that, that, yeah, it's a really cool moment. So how do you do that? I, I don't know if you guys ran into this technical problem. How do you do that while not getting, not ruining your microphone? Yeah, so uh, with the production that I did, which honestly I think is very interesting because uh, the the moment that it happens I think is too crazy and complex to actually douse the carry in blood at that point. Mm. So when like the moment happens, it was just like a, a stream of red light and there was like a projection oh, interesting. of the bucket falling, like you could hear it falling and okay. see it like tipping. Sure. And then a r- flood of red light. And then there was like a projection of like drips, I guess. Yeah. That, like covered the set. Ooh, that's so during, yeah. So during that moment where then she goes, obviously psycho, the whole stage was covered in red. Um, and then it was very interesting how after that scene, when she exits, I mean, we'll get to that when she comes home, whatever. That was when you actually saw the blood. That's when I went off stage and they poured oh, it and moved the mic that's away. That's a great and they idea. Had people yeah, which I thought was like really effective because that moment in general is already really huge when she gets doused in blood that I think like actual blood at that point is a little too much for the audience to handle because then all this stuff starts to happen because yeah. it also happens along with the music. Like there's mm. not really a pause when it there's happens. There's cues, it's like, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was cool to have that offstage moment and then to walk on in silence actually then covered in blood because then the audience also doesn't expect that you'll come back with like the drips and right. like the scariness. Ooh, so that's totally. yeah, that's how we did it. Yeah. Now Sue had discovered that this all was going to go down and tries to warn Miss Gardner, but it actually backfires on her and Miss Gardner like ejects her from the gym, which actually ends up saving her life because everybody else who is in the prom receives the wrath of Carrie and yep. all of these feelings and powers culminate in just absolute destruction everyone is killed and if they're not killed like in the scene then she sets the whole place on fire when she leaves so it's obvious that nobody makes it no survivors Um, except for sue except for sue who escaped yeah well didn't escape got thrown out (laughs) right right yeah she's like why did you throw me out i she probably would have wanted to die with everybody else um, when Carrie goes home, Margaret has come to the point where she believe she feels that she needs to kill her daughter to uh, save the world from this witch and her awful powers. And Carrie is still a teenage girl who's scared and sad and frightened by what has happened. And so Margaret like brings her in for a hug to console her. And then stabs her while she holds her. As Carrie is dying, she uses her powers to stop Margaret's heart. So Margaret dies. And that is when Sue comes into their house and holds Carrie in her last moments before she dies. I mean, it is a Greek tragedy. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Uh, but that was Whew. that was one of those moments that you were talking about where, like, the audience doesn't really know what to do with themselves. Yeah. Like, in that moment where, like, the Carrie gets stabbed, it happens in total silence. And, like, definitely people laughed. Yeah. And people gasped. People, yeah. 
uh, made weird noises because it's like such a if you don't know the story you don't know that it's coming it's very uh, sudden and scary so yeah it was really interesting to hear like the reactions when that moment would happen yeah so theatrical um, <laughs> to give people the chance to experience all of this right in real time honestly that's my favorite type of theater yeah um and so the show ends with us right back where we started with this bookend of sue telling the story as the sole survivor from this crazy experience and i don't know what do you what do you feel like we're left with at the end of the show oh goodness uh well i know that the final song like that's kind of like where like the theme of the show is really like you know spelled out what's the word yeah, I guess so. What does Sue say in the last part? It's a... Um, I felt as though this girl revealed herself to me, and now I know that once you see, you can't unsee. I don't know. I guess that's maybe the first time that Sue is like really like, um, this girl was human, and if she had just stepped forward during the, during the big that opening scene, yeah. then maybe none of this would have happened. I think it's a big like uh, character moment for Sue, because she's like, oh my god, I could... I could have prevented this, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just the ripples, you know? That mm-hmm. you... Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that that is very much part of the teenage experience. Kind of what we were mm-hmm. talking about earlier is that you don't realize how some of these things can reverberate, not only for the rest of your life, like into your adulthood, but also can really affect the people around you, um, yeah. your schoolmates. And that's that's pretty profound. Yeah. What you see, you can't unsee. So clearly she's now in this time warp where she's going to have to retell the story for as long as Ooh, she's alive. I like that, Julia Lester. <laughs> I mean, being the sole survivor of something that huge, I mean, there's no way that she's not going to go through, I mean, even in literal terms, yeah. like legal things and talking to all these kids' parents and being the only person that they can talk to from this night, that yeah. character probably has to experience this Relive thing for the over rest of her and life. over again. Yeah. Oof. And that's high school. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> wow. Yay. <I> know. <laughs> we did it. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much for doing this. This is this oh has God. been so fun. Uh, happy Halloween to everybody as well, because it's not very often that we get to have scary musicals. Uh, but I yeah. love them. I think they're mm-hmm. really exciting. And I'm grateful for artists who were brave enough to try this show. And I think maybe we have reached the point now where we don't think, well, that can't be made into a musical. Like, I think yeah. we, I think we're past that now. Totally. totally. Uh, where, but, you know, when Carrie first came out, people just were so certain that this story should not be musicalized. And, uh, and I think we've all proved them wrong. I mean, I wonder if that version, if it had come out when the revival did, if it would have been a success, if like this generation would have like received that sort of show yeah. in a in a better way. I think so. I think the approach would have been different because I don't think that yeah. the Royal Shakespeare Company would have felt this need to make it anything more than it is. Yeah. Uh, would it have been a huge success on Broadway and run for many years? I don't, probably not. But the soft Broadway revival... It ran for like a month and a half and was and made a big enough cultural footprint for it to be done regionally and uh, Mm -hmm. for everyone to enjoy the material out finally, you know? Yeah. 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 Super cool. 
As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical at gmail.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast. And be sure to subscribe to Patreon exclamation point, where for only one dollar a month you can receive bonus episodes to thank you for keeping the show alive. Hey, Miss Julia, how do we follow you <laughs> and everything you're up to? Ooh, uh, you can follow me on, I'm mostly on Instagram at Julia Lester. And uh, you can also catch me on High School Musical, the musical, the series on Disney Plus. Yes. <laughs> Thank you again. You're wonderful. I've had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Halloween, everyone. Yes. And to everybody out there, happy Halloween. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.